Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet the 2020 winner of the Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award in Literary Arts and the author of An Instant Out of Time, Within Two Rooms, and Other Poetry Collections. Joseph Pathanti, former North Carolina Poet Laureate, says this about Gail's new book. I've admired Gail Peck's poems for 30 years, their precision and sensibility, gorgeous imagery, and taut, chiseled language that echoes long after the final syllable. All these hallmarks are exponentially evident in Peck's extraordinary new volume, An Instant Out of Time. These new poems beautifully contemplate and amplify the Dust Bowl photographs of legendary photographer Dorothea Lange, while An Instant Out of Time is a primer on how to write breathtaking, ekphrastic poems. It is also a celebration of two artists, Lange and Peck in a seamless collaboration of their respective arts that is heartbreakingly unforgettable. Gail's first reading is tractored out, Childress County, Texas, from her book, An Instant Out of Time. Tractored out, Texas Panhandle, 1938. Set in the midst of furrows, a small house, no smoke from the chimney, no people. They try to hold on. Oh, yes, next year's crop will yield and the dust will cease. One child after another, dust pneumonia, threatening death. Finally, the people moved on to Oklahoma, where conditions were the same. Then to California, no Okies allowed. Now the fields are silent, no sound of tractors the price of wheat falling and falling. What might be left inside the house? What wasn't necessary? Wouldn't fit in the jalopy. The straight, flat road ahead, signs to count the miles, stories for the children to ward off hunger. The mother sang, soon. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. 
Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author. Followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. Gail Peck is the 2020 winner of the Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award in Literary Arts. She holds an MFA from the Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College and is the author of eight books of poetry. Her first full-length book, Drop Zone, won the Texas Review Breakthrough Contest. The Braided Light won the 2014 uh, Lena Shaw Book Contest. Her poems and essays have appeared in Southern Review, Nimrod, Greensboro Review, Brevity, Connotation Press, and Online Artifact, Comstock Review, and elsewhere. Her poems have been nominated for a Pushcart and for Best of the Net. Her essay, Child Waiting, was cited as notable by Best American Essays. Gail's been writing most of her life. She started writing poems for her mother on special occasions. Gail has been writing most of her life. She started writing poems for her mother on special occasions. It was when she lived just outside of New Orleans that she began her formal education of poetry by studying at the University of New Orleans and joining a writer's group. Her readings began there, and New Orleans being New Orleans, she read in the French Quarter, on the dock, because the ferry never showed up, at Mardi Gras, and a well-known place called the Maple Street Bar where the locals came in to do laundry in the back. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, first congratulations uh, on the... Uh, on the ward uh, and your fine career as a poet. This uh, it's a nice honor receiving the 2020 Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award in Literary Arts. Congratulations. Thank you. It is really a great honor um, to have this award, especially in Irene Honeycutt's name, someone I greatly admire. Yeah, and I'm sorry that uh, COVID-19 took away the celebration. Uh, we were going to do this at Sensoria. You're going to receive the award there. It's a nice event. We were going to do a live podcast when we did it, but uh, the pandemic had other things in mind and we just had to adjust. So we're going to celebrate here on the podcast. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, So let's clue the listeners in a little bit about what we're going to do today, uh, what we have planned for this celebration. We're going to we're going to kind of we're going to discuss and have you read uh, from your recent book, An Instant Out of Time, uh, which was mentioned uh, in the opening but also we're going to kind of travel through time and discuss uh, some of your other poems and some things about your writing. Um, And then we're going to get into your writing life a little bit. But first I'd kind of like to start where I left off when I was uh, uh, laying out your biography here uh, with some questions about your beginnings. You say you started writing poems for your mother on special occasions. How young were you when you started writing poems? Probably nine years old. 
Um, and they were what we would call now little ditties uh, that rhymed and didn't take a lot of imagination, but I enjoyed doing it. So that started me on this road. Did your mother encourage uh, this creative outlet you had? I can't say that she did um, because writing poetry was probably too foreign to her. But, you know, like any mother, she appreciated it and thanked me for uh, what I tried to do uh, as a special occasion for her. Now, you said that you kind of really got started uh, with your uh, study of poetry in in New Orleans area. Uh, talk about that time period in your life and what sort of propelled you into this world of poetry. I was a young mother with two children, and I had loved literature while I was in high school, and I continued to love it. Perhaps I didn't read as much poetry, uh, finding it more complicated, but poetry started to change in those uh, years to be much more accessible. I could actually read something without a great deal of footnotes, uh, although I read those poems too in my study of English literature. And I found that I was fascinated with the process uh, and not knowing uh, where you're going to end up. And then I had a chance to go to the University of New Orleans and study um, with uh, a man who had won the Yale series of Younger Poets that year, a poet named David Wojohn. And I took that opportunity, and it sort of started me on a road that I would continue. And you said you were from a family that had never thought about you going to college. You were kind of an army brat, mm -hmm. moved around for years. So it's not exactly the, the most direct path for a poet, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. I I grew up on country music and true romance. So uh, I guess you would say I have come a long way. Um, I certainly wanted an education, uh, though my parents... They didn't expect me to go to college, but they were trying to get me through high school, and algebra was the thing that was the stumbling block. So I had to be tutored. I also moved around a lot as an Army brat, and I would show up at a new school that had different requirements than the one I had left. But I got through it and, and was the first in my family to graduate from high school. Yeah, and you also talked about uh, when we were talking – uh, a while back uh, when we thought we were going to do this as a live event, I was, we sat down and had a conversation. You were telling me um, about how you got married young and your, uh, your husband then went off uh, to serve in the, in the military. Yes. Uh, I did get married young. I was almost 19. He likes to tell the story that my mother had to sign for me in Georgia <laughs> because that's where we were getting married. And uh, she did. Um, and it probably wasn't the best idea since I was so young and he was young and we pretty much knew he would end up in Vietnam. And so you started uh, these classes um, 
University of New Orleans. Um, and then at some point in time, you decided to go get a Master of Fine Arts uh, as part mm-hmm. of your part of your journey. What uh, what possessed you to do that? I knew that such a thing existed. Um, I had uh, known someone who taught in the program, a different program than Warren Wilson, and that was in Vermont. And uh, he said, you're in North Carolina. Why don't you apply for the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers, which I did and uh, was accepted. And it is one of the best experiences of my life. So over the years, I mean, did you come out of college thinking I want to write poetry or did this just sort of happen in your life? Uh, And then when you went to get your Master of Fine Arts, you became more serious about it. Talk a little bit about your journey as a poet Mm -hmm. through this sort of Mm -hmm. lifetime of achievement. I think the way it evolved was that even before I went to the University of New Orleans, I was in a, as you mentioned earlier, in the writers group in New Orleans. And I realized how good they were, uh, that this is a serious uh, profession and I wanted to do it. I knew then I wanted to do it. I had found something I felt I could do fairly well. I've always wanted to learn all my life. I read uh, pretty much constantly. And um, I got encouragement from the people and that were in New Orleans then, the writers. They've gone on to publish numerous books, many in that group. And then when I my husband got transferred to Charlotte, I immediately started looking for another group that I could join because I feel you absolutely need someone else to look at your work if you want to be a professional. And I did. I had made up my mind. I had already published some before I left New Orleans. And then I went out to the university in New Orleans and continued uh, my studies in English literature. Then when I found out about Warren Wilson, I thought, well, I'm going to apply. I had no idea that I would be accepted, but I was thrilled. And I had all the support of my husband, too. He said, yes, go for it. Well, that's great. There's going to be in the show notes of this uh, for this episode, um, your artist statement, which you provided to me. It's a nice reflection. Um, and based on your accomplishments here, I'd, I'd kind of like to discuss a little bit of that with you. Uh, you start off of that artist statement by saying, poetry for me is a way of life. What do you mean by that? I mean, I it I have considered myself a professional and with anything professional you have to do your work you have to educate yourself you have to keep reaching beyond uh what you've already mastered um and i am around writers I still, Lauren Wilson has an alumni conference yearly that changes throughout the U.S., different states, and I go to that 
most times, and I'm around those writers. I meet new people who have just graduated from the program, and they are living the writing life too. Most of those who come are working hard at the writing, and I think that's what Warren Wilson, the MFA program, was trying to create for us. They knew we would get a degree, we would wander off campus, and then what were we going to do with with of what we had learned. That doesn't mean everyone continued to be a writer, but it prepared you for the work you would need to do. Yeah, you, you've got three affirmative statements uh, in these three paragraphs of your artist statement. The first one, poetry for me is a way of life. And the second uh, paragraph, you say, I'm, I am highly indebted to all the people who've helped me along the way. Um, so you see this uh, writing process is not just a individual endeavor absolutely not um i'm not saying there are not a few writers who can uh write on their own but even novelists are going to have an agent that uh an agent who's going to offer critique and spur them along and say no you didn't quite get it right here you hear tales all the time of novelists having to cut 300 pages. Um, it's not that severe with poetry, each poem more or less being an entity. But um, you need someone who will be honest with you. I'm not writing for Aunt Jane. I am writing for a reader. I don't I don't see that reader in my head, but somewhere out there, there's going to be a reader. There may be a reader I'll never see because the book can go where I can't go. And um, we nurture one another. Uh, North Carolina is an absolutely terrific state to be living in as a writer. There are presses, there are editors, there are friends that celebrate one another's accomplishments. And that brings a community. And that community is extremely important to me. Yeah, there are a lot of organizations uh, in Charlotte uh, and throughout the state of North Carolina. We have Charlotte Writers Club. We have the Charlotte mm -hmm. Center for Literary Arts uh, here locally. We also have the North Carolina Writers Network mm -hmm. uh, throughout the state of North Carolina. And there are lots of writing conferences and as you say, uh, small presses as well. So mm -hmm. I like that. It's kind of a, your second statement there is kind of a humble approach to writing. And then the third, you talk about sort of the act itself. And you say, when in the throes of writing, all time disappears, I am tethered to my words, yet floating away into something bigger than myself. Is that the feeling you get when you're writing? Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> you You did. <laughs> Well, um, I better be careful what I put on my website from now on. But um, I do feel that. I think every creative person feels that. Uh, I've been to artist colonies where I'm around uh, writers, painters, sculptors. They're all pretty much the same. Once they're in that process, you better not interrupt them. And that is like the one rule of those artist colonies. Do not go knocking on that person's door. If you want to slip a little letter underneath, okay. It's it's honored. The profession, uh, the craft 
is honored by others. And that you can't expect that from your neighbors. They, um, they haven't chosen that path and they may or may not care a bit about poetry and you can't usually talk to them about it if they don't appreciate it because they're going to ask you does it rhyme and then they're going to and then they're going to ask you are you published like well if you're published then all of a sudden i get up on another rung well you know it's not that hard to get something published somewhere it is hard to get work published in good journals yeah well i don't think you're alone when you talk about getting sort of wrapped up in uh in the writing as whether you're a poet mm -hmm. uh, or or a prose writer but i'm i'm curious because you you did mention this idea of people interrupting someone when they're in that zone <laughs> how have you and your husband managed to uh walk that path over the years when you're sort of totally invested in something and he comes in and knocks on the door, interrupts. Have y'all got a little signal you use or something? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I mean, no. And yes, I say I'm writing, leave me alone right now. And, but sometimes I'm in the great room where he is and he, he isn't aware that what I'm writing now, it's not my journal, but working on a poem. So he might want to read me something from the newspaper, and then I just say, not now. I don't go into a little, one little space to write. Once I get the draft, as I think it's got some potential, then I come to the computer, and I type it up, and I live with it for a few days. I look at, I look at it daily, and that's all again. I see, you know, mark that out. And then when I get it to a point that I think it's pretty good, that I don't know anything else to do with it at that time, I take it to my workshop group. And then I may have to start all over uh, because you're always close to your own work. You're subjective. You will sometimes give details where people, they, they, my group knows certain things about my life and but I haven't put it in the poem where others readers would know. So they call me on that. And I thought, well, I thought it worked, but I respect them. We all respect uh, one another. And if, if, if a couple of them agree or three, then I know I better go back and revise. And I've come not to hate that process that, it's not going to be perfect the first time. And I am a perfectionist. So it's, it's a difficult task, but I've learned to deal with it over these many years of writing. I, I love, Gail, the way you describe that. I've come not to hate that process. You didn't say, I've come to love that process. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I didn't say that. But I can't tell you how much better the poem can be due to revision, due to the revision. It might be a minor one, word choice, or you might need a complete overhaul. And sometimes if I need the complete overhaul, I just have to put it aside for a while and let things bubble and let life go on and, and bring up something. Often life will give you the answer if you're patient 
And that's the other fault. I'm not patient. But I have learned how to exist within this process so that I can write a poem to the best of my ability um, that other people will appreciate. You don't like every poem that people write, but you can see the craft. If they've crafted it, you usually can see that. Okay. Well, speaking of craft, uh, we're going to do a number of readings today uh, from from different uh, poetry collections you've got, uh, starting first with An Instant Out of Time. This is mm-hmm. uh, ekphrastic ik- poetry, and you're you're giving a nod to Dorothea Lange, uh, mm-hmm. the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. Just talk briefly about uh, what attracted you to 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 use her work um, as inspiration for these for these poems. I had been writing ekphrastic poetry, which a uh, um, short definition is using one art form to describe another art form. A great example would be Keats' poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. She's writing to describe that physical artistic object. I had written from autobiography, which most most poets start out that way because it's what you know. Uh, you remember what grandmother wore in the kitchen, and you remember when your father spanked you, or you, those details are there, ready to be uh, grasped. And I wanted a challenge, and so I started writing a classic poetry um, several years ago about the work of photographers and painters. And then I found uh, Dorothea Lang's work, and I was immediately drawn to it because it's the human being in crisis. The poverty, um, you see it uh, in her photographs, but you also see that many of the people have great dignity. And uh, she was writing, I mean, Excuse me, she was photographing to bring attention to the plight of the migrant worker. And that was her job during that time. Um, But I would say I love to write most about people. I'm not exactly a nature poet. I get some nature in the poems, but I'm drawn to people's faces. And um, I had a background already in looking at her documentary work, which was um, the Dust Bowl and the plot, the plight that created for those people who were uh, going to have to eventually give up their lives and move on to uh, where they thought would be a better place. Not, it didn't turn out necessarily to be that way because they were mostly migrating to California and they won't, they weren't wanted there. They would say, you will hear this phrase in, in one of the poems today, no Okies allowed. Um, so most people from the heart of the Despo was probably Oklahoma, but it, it, it encompassed other states. And the term Okies came to be any 
applied to anyone who was migrating uh, to California because they were taking away the jobs of the people who were already there. And you also have to realize this was in the Depression years. Yeah, in the preface of your book, uh, you talk about Dorothy Lange, mm-hmm. how she accepted a job with the Resettlement Administration in 1935, mm-hmm. later known as the Farm Security Administration. And her photographs, as you said, were intended to kind of provide support uh, for the camps um, mm-hmm. where, where people were arriving to from the Midwest. Uh, and on the cover of your book, you've got this picture. It's very desolate. There's a big, big blank sky and there's furrows and a house and hardly anything around it, which is, mm-hmm. which you can see in your first poem there where you talked mm-hmm. about the, uh, the furrows and the, the crop that uh, wouldn't yield because of the dust. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's, let's take another one, a couple of poems here from this uh, book. You've got mm-hmm. one called Migrant mm-hmm. Mother. Migrant Mother. She's 32, but the lines in her forehead make her look much older. She holds the nursing baby who won't go hungry. Two of her other children with their hair cropped rest on each side of her shoulders, their faces turned away. Whatever she's thinking seems inward, her right hand at her chin, which she tucks slightly down. There are four more children we do not see here. She sold her tent and lives beneath a makeshift shelter. She had come to this part of California to pick peas and discovered they were destroyed by freezing rain. They are eating vegetables that have frozen in nearby fields, birds the children kill. Her mother had told her she had made her bed and to lie in it. What young woman listens to their mother? Her husband had laid his weight on her again and again, not caring if the children heard. Now she gathers the small ones to her when night comes, tells them stories, then sleeps among their breath. Now this was a single photograph you saw of a woman? Mm, Yes. It is one of the most iconic photographs of all time, uh, not just the, for Dorothea Lange, but for the history of photography. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about this poem. I based what I wrote, uh, my research, on one particular book, and it, it, Lang said that the woman had sold her tires and all. Later on, there came to be more to the story than that. I think Lang meant to present what actually happened, but um, got it a little bit wrong. And the woman, Florence Owens Thompson, she was... Um, Cherokee, and um, at the time she was fine with Lang taking a photograph of her and her children. Lang took other photographs of that family too. But later on, she felt like it, the, the photograph became such a sensation, 
she did not care to have her image uh, known in the newspaper. But the value of the photograph for us still today and at the time was it did prompt uh, the government to send 20,000 pounds of food to relieve starvation in the migrant camp. However, Florence had moved on to, uh, I think, to pick lettuce then. But it helped. It helped people recognize the poverty. People are drawn to that photograph, the great dignity of this woman. Who is who's looking off in in a world of trouble, hmm. fear, fear to feed? How will she feed her children? So we got two other uh, pieces we're going to read from this uh, book here before we go take our break and uh, do a couple more uh, poems from other books. Uh, this one uh, is called Pea Picker's Tent. Pea Picker's Tent near Calipatria. California, 1938. Someone with a sense of humor has plopped a man's hat on top of this ragged tent. A washboard leans against it, and there's an upside-down basket with a metal pan. The flap of the opening is pulled back, but all you can see is darkness. At least it's protection from the sun. And if it does rain... Come to think of it, let it storm. Let the wind carry the whole thing off and tear it apart. Let the pieces scatter. A testament to all who are still coming westward, passing the signs. No jobs for Okies, whose homes will be shacks or a tent like this one. Yeah, that's a good uh, description of probably what they were having to live through as they tried to make it, uh, you know, when their homes were lost and they had to move west and become migrant uh, farmers. Uh, and speaking of migrant farmers, you've got one last poem you're going to read mm -hmm. from this collection. It's called Migrant Child and Shafter Camp. Migrant Child and Farm Security Administration, Shafter Camp, California. He is the dirtiest, happiest towhead, missing several front teeth. You can barely make out there are cartoon characters on his sweatshirt, Porky Pig. We're told he lives in a tent instead of in a ditch bank. He must have played in mud. His sleeves are soiled and would never come clean. Does he have a secret hiding place? I believe he'd never tell, not for a dime, maybe a quarter. There is trust in his smile. You want to slip a clean shirt over his head. Foolish you, dirt calls to him. So you saw something in this uh, picture of this child that said he can still find some level of happiness or joy in life, notwithstanding his circumstances? Children can cope a lot better than we think they can. They are, well, they're not the ones who have to provide the food. They hope they can be provided for. And they're, I liked that picture because I wanted to end the book. I do end the book with this. And I wanted to end on a little happier note than all of the sadness and poverty 
and he was perfect. He is filthy. I mean, his clothes are unbelievable. Of course, at those times, they couldn't wash their clothes easily, but he was beyond the pale. And he just seemed so happy uh, and oblivious to his surroundings. And um, I wanted to capture that. Okay, we're going to take our uh, short break now. And uh, listeners, you might want to just Google Dorothea Lang sometime and see some of those pictures. And uh, as you read these uh, poems that uh, Gail has has written, uh, you'll you'll see you know connections between those and what she's done to honor honor that work. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to actually go uh, into another poetry book called uh, Within Two Rooms. Uh, we're going to do some uh, recent poetry as well. Talk a little more writing life, and uh, so please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, Really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, They do critique groups, open mics, and... uh, They offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, They offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience, so uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm back uh, with uh, poet uh, Gail Peck. She's the 2020 
Irene Blair Honeycutt uh, honoree for the Lifetime Achievement Award here uh, in Charlotte. And uh, she's uh, we've been talking about her poetry so far, her, her first her recent book, An Instant Out of Time, which is uh, which honored the work of Dorothea Lange and the Dust Bowl uh, migration. And now we're going to shift to a book uh, called Within Two Rooms. And uh, Rebecca McClanahan, uh, who also is a author in season seven of the podcast. Uh, she had this to say, she said, each poem in Gail Peck's within two rooms is beautifully haunted by the ghost of a mother as alive in memory as she was in life. A woman who outlived two children and endured two difficult marriages and who, uh, though her Bible had been rebound twice, remained hungry for the sensual pleasures of the world Manicures, spray tans, dyed hair, zagnut candy bars, pickled beets, and lottery tickets. And then she goes on to say some other nice things. But does that bring memories back for you of your mother? I, I, yes. I'm, and I'm beginning to think I should have had an entire poem titled What You Just Said about zagnuts, pickled beets, and whatever. Um, my mother... Uh, had lung cancer. She had quit smoking 30 years prior, but some damage had been done. And um, But it was a slow uh, progressing type of cancer. So we had several years to be more grateful than ever for her life. And we tried to make the most of those years um, until the pain became worse but we did some special things for her I think she I think she had a good time until she was in pain I mean I think she made the most of her life truly like Becky says she she did like manicures and spray tan (laughs) (laughs) well let's let's give a little flavor for uh for for her with uh, this first poem you're going to read called shouting shoes shouting shoes Mom's lung biopsy came back negative once more, and my sister calls her. Put on your shouting shoes. And Mom calls me, and I'm thinking, miracle, and wish Mom and my sister believed greatly. I'm the one who wants to touch the wound, though I believe in some higher power who created all the fishes of the sea, the intricate insects, birds, and flowers. If this being resides in the clouds, I look up to watch their shapes and know that the moon is sometimes visible in day while part of the world is dark. We can't leave well enough alone, changing the time twice a year, and now there's a clock on everything. Soon it will be spring, Mom's 82nd birthday. She says she's getting her nails done and being spray tanned. And surely her shoes will shout, another year, dear Lord, another year. <laughs> That's good. So, so Gail, what, uh, what inspired you to kind of do a, a collection that, that uh, featured and honored your mother um, did you, did you have a good relationship over the years? Did you have a complicated relationship? Um, was this something you did in the moment of her suffering or had you been thinking about it for a while? 
it was complicated in the beginning. Yes, it was. But through time uh, and therapy on my part, I think her therapy was her religion. I think that's what gave her comfort. And um, the understanding that she could forgive herself for any wrongdoings that she felt she had done. Um, and I, we loved each other. We loved each other and we wanted our relationship to work and we both worked at it and we succeeded. And at the time of her death, uh, towards the end of her life, uh, I knew I was losing, uh, the most important person in my life, blood connected. Um, and the poems, <clears throat> the poems chose me, but we often say that they just chose me. I felt uh, a rush to get these on paper that I wouldn't even be thinking of writing a poem. And then something would come to me and I would go write it down. I wanted to honor her life. But I wanted to capture it truthfully and um, and also be truthful about myself. A relationship is a two-party thing. Uh, no one is perfect in that. So I tried to write the poems with that in mind. And, and she was a funny person. Uh, and... So the humor came natural. When I do have humor, it just sort of uh, inserted itself there. And I was glad because it was a sad subject. Yeah, you you did celebrate, uh, you know, another year, dear Lord, another year. Let's put on the shouting shoes. That was mm -hmm. a good one there. And uh, you do have a lot of pain and honesty, you know, throughout this uh, book uh, to your mother. We're not going to read the poem within two rooms, but the, mm -hmm. that's where the title of the book comes from. And just so people understand, I suppose, you talk in that poem about uh, how one room has a hospital bed, um, you know, with the pumps and the buttons you push and the other room uh, is where you slept. And so you've got these so two worlds, so to speak, you know, uh, you're there, but she's in a different room going to a different place. Mm -hmm. But you're together within these two rooms. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, when I went to visit her, I slept in the room that was adjacent to hers. And so it was natural to think of being there next to her in that room and um, reliving all the memories that we had shared together. Yeah, and eventually you have to um, deal with your mother's death. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, the cancer does take her. And so you have a poem called Writing My Mother's Obit. Will you share that with us? Writing My Mother's Obit. Although she wasn't yet gone, I looked online to see how it was done. Then wrote she'd been an army wife with tours in Japan and Germany. That she was loved by her church family. They did visit one by one, two by two, leaning over the railing of her bed to sing and pray. I was often in the next room lying down, 
staring at the wallpaper border that went around the ceiling, the cracked plaster barely concealed. Whatever I'd never ask would remain unasked. And could she hear what I said? The funeral director asked if I wanted my mother buried next to my stepfather. I said they didn't get along in life and there was no reason for them to be together in death. She hated Green Creek. An undertaker once wrote that the dead don't care. A month before she died, I'd stood by her bed asking to be forgiven for any slight or shortcoming. Then I went to sleep half listening for her breathing and would get up and lean over her the way she had attended me as a child when she heard my cough or cries, knowing I was afraid to be alone. That's nice, Gail, that uh, she wasn't alone at the end, that you were there to uh, give her comfort just as she had done for you when you were a child. And I love your humor here uh, about, <laughs> about not wanting to be buried next to your stepfather. She didn't get along with him in life. No reason for them to be together <laughs> in death. Uh, did, did she echo those uh, sentiments? Well, it was true that they <laughs> that she didn't want to go to Green Creek. She had already picked out her casket or at least sent my sister in to do it. <clears throat> and, um, so it was the it was the truth. Uh, uh, they asked me that, and that's exactly what I said. And um, but she did uh, end up being in a cemetery for veterans and wives of veterans, and uh, that was a, a beautiful resting place for her. I felt. Yeah, and the day did come, and you had to write the the real obituary. But I think this mm -hmm. uh, collection is really kind of. Uh, an obituary in it, it in, is. in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And you talk about tenses, uh, of course, present tense is life, uh, but the name of this poem is Past Tense. Past Tense. How quickly it passes from is to was, from has to had. As quick as a bird flies from a windowsill, you hear its song, but no longer see it. They had slit her gown up the back to spread across her. Small embroidered roses at the top with beads in each center. The eyes don't totally close near the end. And once the hands cooled, we knew. And I know almost nothing of Bible verses. But it came to me when they removed the body the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. For she was a godly woman, my mother. Dress her in pink with the white lace blouse. For she loved white, white of the lily, white of the clouds. That's nice, Gail. Um, one last one from the book. And this is the one you, this is the, last poem of the book uh, mm -hmm. within two rooms. It's called Birthplace. Uh, why did you select this for the, uh, to, to bring this uh, book to a close? I think primarily because of the last stanza um, and that it ends with silence. And I knew I would 
not hear her voice again. So I think that was why I chose it. But uh, it was, uh, I had to give myself a prompt for this poem. This was not one of those that just came easily. All right, well, let's, uh, let's hear it. I would say that the prompt was going through a book I was reading. Um, that's why I um, have it after Czeslo Milos, who was a Polish poetry. He had a poem titled Birthplace, so I started with that. Birthplace. You were my beginning... And again, I am with you, mother, in the song of the bird perched in the dogwood of Virginia, where both of us were born. We'd walk down the hillside to town, a few dollars in your pocket for lipstick, a coloring book for me, a large box of crayons with a name on each, then up the hill again to sit in the swing. I'd pick dandelions you'd place in a glass on the windowsill. I did not conceive of them as weeds. Later, the pungency of roses, lilacs. We didn't buy flowers at the store, counting on the wild iris to continue blooming by the fence we dreamed never to leave, yet did. Now dandelions are taking their place on your grave where rain falls on the etched stones someone mows around. Listen, you had said, a mockingbird I couldn't always see in the distance. You'd repeat the sounds so that I hear them in the silence. So, Gail, how long after uh, your mother's death did you put this collection together or were you doing it sort of through the process of her dealing with her illness? I think I was doing it. I don't think I started writing the poems until after she had passed away. But during that time of, of those days when we were in vigil for her uh, nearby family in rooms uh, adjacent to hers. Um, you have so many images, so many deep feelings that are coming at you. And I sort of file them away. Uh, I often write poems in my head before I ever sit down with a pencil and paper, which is beginning to scare me, but so far I can still remember them. And... Um, this poem, though, you can tell by the nature of the poem, this was a reflection. This was a reflection of all that I would never get to experience again. That's wonderful. So before we do some of your recent poetry and end with a piece that you told me took you 40 years to write, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I thought I want to ask you a few writing life questions. Uh, sometimes I talk to authors about routines, and, and I think as part of your artist statement, you say, well, I don't have a set time to write. Mm -hmm. The writing gets done and uh, feeds me as surely as food. So have you always been one of those writers that can just uh, sit down anywhere, anytime and take up a pen and start writing as opposed to structuring out your writing day? Poetry is 
someone described it as like, you know, the, the white iron, uh, the fire. Um, and I don't think it's as easy to write as, well, I don't want to say easy. Um, I think you have to have not inspiration, but something has to lodge within you to make you want to sit down to write the poem. I just know that I write consistently, although I don't do it Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 10 to 12. The poems are going to come. And um, the difference was with... uh, Dorothea Lang, uh, I had images to go to. And the the process was different there. I would go through and put little stickums all through the photographs that struck me the most. And then I could open it up and um, see, well, am I going to be able to write about this Uh, after having done a lot of research too. But with everyday poems, I mean, everyday in the sense of that It's not a novel. You don't sit down with this long plan in mind. You know, you can write a poem in one setting and it might be finished and it might not be finished, as you said, for 40 years. So you never know. You never know. But um, it it just gets done. But I was taking in a lot of of images um, during my mother's death and the process change too when if if you're going to have me read photograph of my father the process changed there because I deliberately then turned my attention to family photographs so I was combining ecrastic poetry with autobiography and uh, I made uh, myself a task of doing that, and I wrote many, many poems and prose pieces on family photographs. Well, let's go ahead and read that then, and we'll come back with some more questions while, while you're talking about it. Photograph of my father. He looks to be about 14, sitting on a bench in front of a painted ship. The tip of his round-brimmed hat appears to touch the hull of the ocean liner. Water foams at its base, and there are clouds above. Any minute, the ship will launch into choppy waters. My father might be dreaming of seeing something beyond Spartanburg, South Carolina. He doesn't know that his future will be the Army. For now, he's stalled on a bench. Later, he will wear a Class A uniform with the red braids of a paratrooper looped over his shoulders and blouse his pants into boots. He was a man who could leave everything behind, my beautiful mother, my brother, and me. I would see him twice after he left us. I tore up the clipping from the paper that the aunt who raised him gave me. My mother and I had gone to visit her, and she told us he was killed in a stock car race. On the way home, mother was crying. I said, that's what happens to foolish people. 
She didn't answer. I was driving and looking straight ahead, opening a letter that never came. So, Gail, when you go back and read poems like this, you've written a lot about family over the years. Um, and I can feel that there's some heartbreak in these some of these poems that you've written. What what swells up in you today as you read that particular poem? I wish your questions were easier. <laughs> uh, sadness, um, loss. Uh, most poems are about loss. Most poems have a degree of vulnerability. It's hard to write about... Um, People you think, uh, people who disappointed you, uh, people you don't really respect. And that was a great sadness for me that I I did not have a father uh, around like my girlfriend seemed to have. Of course, you know, there were probably a lot of things going on I didn't see, but I saw so many loving fathers and I wanted one myself. So what you hear at the end of the poem is the anger because I can never make it right now. I, as long as I thought he was alive, I could go on dreaming that we would have this reconciliation. He would show me that he loved me, that he was proud of me. But instead, he just disappeared uh, when I was very young. And as I said, I saw him twice after that. But always the hope lived that we could have something together. You only have one biological father. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's do this. A couple of fill-in-the-blanks to get at you uh, as, as a writer here, as a poet. Uh, um, the first time you felt like you could call yourself a poet was when? I don't know the answer to that. Um it could have been somewhere around the time that I was accepted at Warren Wilson, the MFA program, and I thought, well, there's someone out there taking me pretty seriously because that's a darn good program, one of the best in the country. <laughs> the best money I ever spent as a writer was what? The the best and the most was for that degree. <laughs> good, you talked about it. Yeah, the value of it. Uh, the... Uh, the vices and activities that interfere with my writing include? Daily life. <laughs> uh, I mean, when we used to have daily life, now we have we have nothing but time. So uh, it, you can't use, I don't have time to write as an excuse right now. And, I mean, there are people who have uh, are still going to their jobs and working from home. But for people who are retired, uh, which I guess I have to include myself among those. I have all the time in the world. Uh, but when uh, I don't really feel there's an impediment to my writing. I've, I've, I've gone off to writing retreats simply mostly because I wanted to meet the other people, the creative people who were there and that I didn't have to cook dinner. So, you know, that was great. And I love hanging around with the painters because they're just have a different, I like writers too, but I'm around writers all the time. So I don't think there is an impediment. I, I, 
I don't. If if you have a, a family member who's ill, that might take you away. But my sister was the main caretaker for my mother because she lived in the same town as my mother. So I don't have any excuses, I guess. Yeah, we're recording this at the end of June and uh, things are still kind of in flux as far as COVID-19. And when this comes out in the fall, no tell, telling where it'll be. And ho- hopefully we're mm-hmm. moving you know, closer to figuring some of this out. But uh, I think I remember you telling me early in COVID-19 that uh, even though you had more time, you didn't feel like you could write as much or focus as much on that. As, did, how did you, how has writing been for you during the period of COVID-19? Has it been more difficult or has it been uh, easier? I don't think it's been more difficult. Uh, in the, the first few weeks, I imagine I was like everyone else. I was in shock, what, especially what was going on in New York City so drastically, involving so many people. And um, I decided to keep a little COVID diary separate from my journal in the morning so that I was recording some of the things that were, had changed in our lives. And I have written some poems about that subject because my husband and I live in a a long-term care community, in a retirement community here at Sharon Towers. And I see a lot. And I see how people, the average age is over 80, and how cautious everyone must be because they are at such a vulnerable age in their lives. So I wrote some about that, uh, just what came to me. Um, and um, then I write, I've written the regular poems um, because I'll, I'll be blow drying my hair and all of a sudden here comes a poem and I'm thinking, well, not now, not now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so these you you ascribe to the Elizabeth Gilbert uh, who wrote Big Magic's view that there there are ideas floating around there in the universe and sometimes they just visit themselves upon you and uh, they they stick like magnets they do and um, I don't I guess I'm lucky for that um, I'll just be doing something and um, like. I was putting perfume on one day and I thought this is the bottle of perfume I meant to give my mother. But by the time I got there, I mean, she died at Thanksgiving and I was already thinking of Christmas and I knew that she wasn't going to need perfume. So I still talked to her and I, knowing I was going to do this podcast today, I took a little spurt. And said, okay, mom, help me through this. So uh, I write whatever comes to me. That's, that's great. Uh, yeah, I've got, um, when my dad died, um, my mother didn't know what to do with his golf clubs. I've already got golf clubs, but I keep them and they're in a in the room where I keep my golf clubs. So every time I go in to pick them up, I see his clubs and it just brings back so many memories you know, trips we took together and mm-hmm. courses we played. So I can see how something like that could bring back memories. All right. What, a couple of final questions here um, mm-hmm. on the writing life. You've had a long career. You've gotten an award for your uh, literary success and your commitment over the years to to poetry. I'm just curious, and I ask this question sometimes, what would you tell 
your younger writing self, something you've learned through your many years of experience that had your younger self known it then might have made a difference in her writing life? I would say be patient. Don't lose hope. Um, As a writer, if you attempt to publish, which I think if you're going to be consider yourself a professional writer, you you have to publish. Um, To be patient and that sometimes it will go in cycles. You will get several acceptances and then you go for two months and you think, I must not be any good anymore. It's doubt. But I think doubt is what spurs the writer. Um, if If you could do it all, it would just be like putting a puzzle, you know, puzzle pieces together. You say, oh, yes, they interlocked right here. Um, and they're not going to interlock anywhere else. But um, patience, uh, perseverance, kindness to yourself, uh, because it can be very competitive in the beginning years. You haven't accomplished things yet. Um, you don't maybe have a first book. You You're in competition and you find out that your workshop shop partner partner just got accepted in Southern Review and you just got a rejection from them. You, I had a teacher at Warren Wilson who said, you cannot compare yourself to other people. You just have to believe in your own writing and do it to the best of your ability. Gail, yeah, that's, that's great advice. They should bottle that up and sell it to young <laughs> to young writers because uh you know patience often is not a, a, a you know an attribute that a young writer has when they decide yeah I want to get published I want to do this and then along come the rejections and uh you're right you just kind of have to got to you have to stay with it uh so what before you read the last poem here what's ahead for the 2020 Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award winner. What do, what do you you're gonna you're gonna keep writing? I hope and keep publishing. Perhaps I I will write until I become unable to write. Um, as I said, it's a lifetime process for me. I find the rewards of it to be great. I um, I never knew I would be awarded the Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, I don't even know what my next publication will be. Uh, I will continue to publish because there's satisfaction in it. And with the internet now, um, so much of the publications being online, you can just put them out there, put the link, and... I get responses from people, sometimes people I don't know, uh, maybe um, just saying or or comments that editors have passed on to me that this really, this person wrote me and said that really touched them. Um, And so I'm I'm not giving up. (laughs) Well, that's that's great to hear. Um, Now, one of the things you talked about was patience. The other was perseverance, which kind of folds very nicely into this uh, poem that took you 40 
years to write. Now, you didn't actually sit down and try to write for 40 years, but it took you that long to sort of come to where you could write it. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Oh, Bob. I was wearing an orange maternity dress that summer morning, standing at the airport that would take you to Vietnam. I wasn't yet 21. Our parents never said how foolish we'd been to marry, having done so themselves in a time of war. I watched you go up the steps of the plane, put on your sunglasses, and turn to wave. Should I have thought I might never see you again? The armor of youth. I barely remember driving home, only the comfort of the bed, the antique dresser with mirrors across the room. Somewhere, someone was mowing. I knew I should get up at some point the baby's foot, a knot in my stomach. Outside were lilacs, hollyhocks, hydrangeas. I could make a bouquet, but I didn't. Night came with its cool air, air you were flying through, a small lamp on, a moth at the screen in its camouflage. So, Gail, I believe you told me that uh, about 30 years ago, you actually tried to write this and then you set it aside in a file that you sometimes label revision. (laughs) And and it kind of sat there. Um, Why do you think this poem took you so long to finish? The pure emotion of it um, that I could have That day could have been the last time I saw my husband in Vietnam. I mean, since he was going to Vietnam, I might never see him again. And aside from losing the person you love, I was carrying his child. And that caused me to be very vulnerable. And I just could not get it on the page to where it coalesced. Uh, and then I came upon Obad, which the definition, if some don't know, is lovers parting at dawn. The hard part, there are a few lines that stayed the same. That orange maternity dress was always in there. And the image of my husband going up the steps and putting on the sunglasses. And later I thought, Maybe because he was crying and he put the sunglasses on to conceal that because he was going in the blind. He didn't need sunglasses. And then it was the ending that I couldn't get to. I could not get to the ending. But I wouldn't let this poem go away. I was determined. I'm 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 a Capricorn, you know, so I'm, I won't let anything go away. I'll just keep at it. And if I feel the investment is worth it. And certainly it was with this poem. So I got, as we do, we write the poem. We don't know where we're going. We go one line and the next line and the next line, and then you might mark it out and move lines around. But finally the poem came together for me when I 
hit upon that image of the moth and and the word camouflage because he would be uh, in Vietnam wearing those fatigues that camouflage uh, for safety. I knew I didn't need an abstraction. So when I get like this, especially at the end of the poem, what I usually try to do is think of a simple image, just a simple image. And what that simple image can convey can be a lot. In this term, the metaphor for him being in the uniform. Well, you talk about uh, whether it's worth the investment. It's certainly been uh, you know, worth the investment to have you contribute to the writing world as you did to, to receive this uh, honor uh, is, is very appropriate. Uh, appreciate you also investing your time today with Charlotte Reader's podcast to come on and talk about, uh, talk about your poetry and your life and poetry. And uh, we're going to have some uh, information, in the show notes uh, listeners for you. Uh, we'll have book cover pictures. Uh, we'll have links, uh, information about Gail Gail, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Ridge's podcast. Well, thank you for doing all the work, um, background work you did. You, you did do a good job, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.